You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am delighted again to be joined by, um, for a second time now, Professor John Davis from um, MIT Sloan. Um, Firstly, John, thank you for agreeing to come back on the show. Russ, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Uh, and we mentioned at the end of our um, last show that we were, we were going to be talking about um, disruption and um, there's a couple of subjects uh, within that specifically that we're going to be covering today. Um, but before we get into that, perhaps um, the best way to start would be to give perhaps those listeners who haven't heard to the, um, the previous episode an introduction to yourself and your career and um, perhaps a bit more about your current role with uh, MIT Sloan um, to, to kick us off. Sure. Uh, I'm um, a pioneer of the field of family business. It sounds odd to say that, of course, Russ, because one would think that this, the oldest form of enterprise would have been receiving lots and lots of attention uh, over the centuries, but it's not true. I started in the late 1970s and was one of the first academics to study family companies. Over the past four decades, I've, um, I've been a professor at different schools. I spent 20 years at Harvard Business School uh, helping to create and uh, expand on the family business topic. And I moved recently to the MIT Sloan School of Management, mm-hmm. where I'm leading uh, four different education programs, executive programs on the topic of family business. And uh, it's a, um, it's, it's always been for me a fascinating topic. Mm-hmm. There are so many areas that are important to understand for a family or a business to be able to help them grow and prosper and survive uh, that I've um, every day I feel more motivated than the last uh, to uh, to explore on this. And in addition, over these decades, I've been advising families all over the world, uh, from small to very large, young to old, uh, one owner to many many owners, on the issues that they face, and have an advisory firm called Cambridge Advisors to Family Enterprise that is um, uh, quite well known in this space. Yeah. So that's me. And and for those um, listeners who may not have caught the last episode, we we spoke about um, uh, probably one of the most well-known models in in the family business field, which is the the three-circle model, which um, you, along with um, Renato Taguri, kind of... Um, founded and, and created. Um, so if, if you haven't listened to that episode, I do recommend going back and, and having a listen. I think it's episode 40 off the top of my head, um, but we'll put a link in the show notes um, for that. Um, so so to, to kick off this episode, Dad, should, should we start by defining what we mean by 
disruption and the areas in which firms and families can be disrupted? Yeah, well, disruption is a, um, it's a relatively new term that I think is being overused uh -huh. to talk about changes that happen. Yeah. Not all changes are disruptive changes. Uh, you can have innovations uh, in, a, in a product, let's say, or in a, uh, a process, a way of doing things that doesn't necessarily disrupt. It's innovative. I mean, you can, you can make a toaster better. Mm -hmm. uh, you can innovate on that product. But that change isn't necessarily disruptive to the way we have breakfast. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's change. It's an improvement. So innovation are basically doing the same things better in some way. And disruption has to do with making things that make old things obsolete. Like, for example, uh, or, or forces them to re-examine their business model. You know, so when Uber and Lyft came along, mm -hmm. um, and that had a huge disruptive impact on the taxi business. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps even more broadly on uh, automobiles and uh, selling automobiles. So, uh, you know, and uh, digital technology has, in fact, forced uh, a lot of companies out of the game and helped other companies, um, uh, you know, emerge. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we're, you can all remember, we can all remember Blockbuster, Okay. Where we go to rent our videos, well, no, we don't do that now. Uh, I'm sure somebody's out there doing it, yeah. but in fact, it, it revolutionized, really disrupted the way that business of video rentals or media rentals is conducted. And now, of course, you have Netflix and others that do it a different way. Mm -hmm. So a disruptive change has to do with the um, uh, introducing some force that, that introduces something new, a new way of doing things, a new product that forces others to really change the way they do things in a big way. Mm -hmm. So innovation, innovative changes, and um, even just introducing new things and then things that disrupt, these are constants in life now. Mm. And we need to, whereas they came, you know, more periodically in previous generations and ages, now they're coming in a steady stream and um, pretty much in a flood. And we anticipate that the, the, the rate of change, which everybody is noticing now and talking about now, of course, um, is actually going to, to increase. If recent data says, for example, Russ, that if you look at the, the vo just the volume of data that we've created so far, and where is that going? Mm. Uh, and there's something called a zettabyte. Right. 
Z-E-T-T-A Byte, B-Y-T-E, Zettabyte, which is a lot of bytes. Yeah, it sounds like it's got a lot of zeros after it. A lot of, 21 of them. Wow. 21 zeros. (laughs) That that if uh, in 2015 there were 12 zettabytes of data that had been created, now they're 43. This year they're 43. Yeah, that's more than a tripling. Mm. Just in years. And uh, by 2025, get this, there'll be 163 zettabytes. Wow. You know, so that's like a 13, 14 time since 2015 increase. Yeah, it's incredible. The volume of data. And then if you look at the number of, you know, we're talking now about the Internet of Things, Uh how how mechanisms could be a refrigerator or your phone or your... Um, or your TV, or your home security system, or your car, uh, the connection between things is, uh, in terms of the, the billions of devices that are connected, in 2015, there were 15 billion things that were connected. Mm. In 2025, we expect 75 billion, <laughs> five-fold increase. You know, so this this rate of change uh, and this is driven by technology, uh, is a, it's, it's a phenomenal, it's a, a, almost a, a mind-numbing rate of change. And one of the reasons that uh, I feel fortunate to be at MIT is because the rate of change, uh, and particularly around technology, but not exclusively, is a constant topic uh, within the uh, walls of that good institution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my job is to figure out how change is effect- in, in a broad uh, range of things, uh, is changing the lives of family enterprises mm-hmm. and the families that own them. Yeah. And it's, a, uh, it's keeping me very busy. I can imagine because we're often told that one of the characteristics of a family owned business is that they tend to take a longer term view. Then they're not quite so knee jerk as some businesses who who are trying to, um, you know, move move to to get an advantage over other shareholders. They're they're taking um, a longer term view. Does that contradict their ability to adapt to change or are the two not? Can they, can they coexist? They can coexist. And for example, um, a longer term view reflects the, um, the identity that families have with their companies or other kinds of enterprises and the fact that they're committed to them and want to perpetuate them. Mm-hmm. So when, um, when you have that kind of approach to what you own, uh, you tend to want to protect it and do things that are uh, helpful to grow it. Mm-hmm. So what we see in family companies, and again, it, when you think about it, it's very predictable. Uh, families and family companies tend to be much greater innovators than non-family companies. Mm-hmm. 
You know, but what that reflects is that families really love to improve, um, tinker with, expand, make it better, make it faster, etc. cetera. Uh, improve the quality. Uh, families are great. Uh, families in business and family companies tend to be um, great experimenters or innovators, changers in terms of the process and products and services that they offer. Mm-hmm. Now, what families tend to be slower at is getting out of something that they're really invested in right. and moving to new things mm-hmm. um, that, you know, because things have changed enough that the old things or the old things that we're, uh, we're selling, the old things and the old ways of doing things um, are no longer valued. And so if we want to stay in the game as a family, we need to shift into new activities. Mm-hmm. And now there are good examples of families doing that. And in fact, the survivors in business, the families that survive in business, either over time learn that requirement and they do diversify into mm-hmm. other areas close to home and further away from home in terms of what they know. And some families, it's not too prevalent yet, but you see some families following what I call um, a reinvention path. Mm-hmm where every generation nearly kind of sells off what the previous generation did and creates a whole new set of activities. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is the uh, Stenbeck family uh, in Sweden, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the founder Hugo back in the thirties, 1930s, um, um, started out in forestry and agriculture, his son, Jan, said, I don't want to do that. These are not good growth opportunities. Sold those, moved into steel and auto and telecommunications. And uh, when he passed away at a young age, unfortunately, his daughter, Christina, who is a very impressive um, business leader and entrepreneur, uh, did the same thing. Mm. Uh, After uh, studying the situation, she sold her dad's businesses and moved then into entertainment and e-commerce. And uh, so, but whether it's diversification, which is a more gradual migration into other activities over time, or reinvention, which is a bolder, more um, categorical move from one set of activities into another set of activities, you need to do that. You need to be do that. You need to do both. You need to both be a good innovator uh, of what you've got and then periodically reevaluate what you have and say, are these the right activities? Maybe we should do less of this and more of that. Maybe we should sell A and buy B, Mm. right? And in a a previous episode, um, we chatted to um, Greg McCann, who um, was at Stetson. Um, I think he's moved on from from Stetson. He might might have retired now. Um, And he talked about the shift from being a family business to being a business family. 
and utilizing yeah. the wealth and the skills and, and the tools that are at the, the family's disposal to make that pivot into another area. And, and this is what we're talking about here, isn't it? It's, it's moving from yeah, you say, forestry into um, telecommunications, but, but retaining the, uh, the business family, um, but diversifying away from something that might not be the right area to be in. Yeah, what you know, what 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 I think we're saying here is that um, businesses come and go, particular mm-hmm. businesses come and go. That what is popular today uh, may not be popular or viable tomorrow. Videotaped movies aren't in anymore. Mm-hmm. Nobody does that, or very few people do it. What they want is to download movies onto their computers, okay? Mm-hmm. So we, we changed. And so you can still be in the video rental business broadly, but you better move decisively into new technology. And um, here, here's, here's, here's another one that um, is, we're looking at, it's a very interesting example. Um, Meat, as we know, is um, uh, becoming, it's harder and harder to feed the world's population with meat. Yeah. And, and it turns out it's highly polluting. Um, having the, the, the cows and the sheep and the other uh, farm animals, uh, you know, um, industrially or in, in factory-like situations, where you can make the production of meat economical is hugely damaging mm. uh, to the environment. And people are moving away from meat, but still like meat. So what about meatless meat? Well, that's starting to happen. Meat that we develop in a factory, in, in a laboratory, sorry. And, and you find companies like uh, Tyson's, which is a huge U.S.-based um, family company in meats, uh, investing now in meatless meat <laughs> and, um, and actually um, cannibalizing their own uh, meat products yeah. with a meatless substitute, which, by the way, you should try it. It's um, uh, the company's name uh, that is responsible for this is Beyond Meat, good name. And Tyson's is making an investment in this and experimenting in this new product line wisely um, because they recognize that this is part of the future. Mm -hmm. Okay? Made possible because technology is, is allowing meatless meat and will disrupt meat production mm. okay so who's going to take advantage of that well tyson is saying we're going to be in the production of meat like products whether it's real meat or laboratory grown meat uh-huh. and uh and we're going to so they've broadened how they see their business and are migrating to new technologies and new products yeah this is what this is what we. I want to get this mentality, Russ, into the minds of family business owners. Yeah, that that leads on to 
to um, one of the questions that I have is, um, what are some of the key elements that determine how well a family business can adapt to change and to disruption, if, if we want to label it that? Are there characteristics? Is it um, size of firm? What, what makes families better able to adapt than others? Um, <clears throat> well, to uh, just revisit the, the point I was making here, you know, you need to have in business today two mindsets that, that are complementary, and you need to honor both. One is an operator mindset mm -hmm. where you're interested in operational excellence, doing things really well. Um, and then uh, an owner's mindset okay. where, you're, where you're thinking about what do we own, what returns are we getting from what we own, what seems to be growing, what's happening to, let's say you have two or three different product lines, and they, you could, these could be organized into two or three different companies or maybe, maybe within one company, but they're distinct product lines. And you're thinking, what's growing, what's not? What's happening in the industries where I compete? What are the markets demanding? What could disrupt what I'm doing today? Uh -huh. Either in how I do it, my processes, or what I sell. And you've got to get altitude on your business from time to time uh, so you don't think just like an operator. Mm -hmm. You need to get altitude and think like an owner at times and saying, what are good bets for the future? Now, I, we're trying in our practice, uh, families are um, quite open to the logic of this. They understand it. Yeah. But the question is, how do I get there? Mm. What should I be thinking about? How, how can you help me think better like an owner? And, and so we do have some concrete advice. For example, uh, look outward. Uh, families and, and managers of uh, family companies uh, understandably spend a lot of their time looking inward, fixing problems, you know, tinkering with the organization, dealing with customer relations and financial issues. I get it. But you need to have, you need to create, I think people manage their lives through their agendas, uh -huh. through their calendar. And you must, as a discipline, spend some time getting out of your comfort zone and out of your company and really understanding what's happening out there. And, and you can do it through visiting. You know, right now, you can look at your competitors. You can look beyond your competitors. You should. You should be spending some time out there in your industry and beyond trying to figure out what's coming down the road at you. Uh -huh. And education can help in this regard. Yeah. One of the things we do now because uh, at our company, because we are sitting 
right smack dab in the middle of this technology hub uh, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, is organizing technology tours for families. Okay. Learn what's going on in technology. Or, you know, Singularity University or my new school, MIT, offers courses that let you in on, you know, the variety of things that are happening in the world that could affect your business. Mm. Uh, I think it's an obligation of family owners to take that seriously and go out and broadly, uh, not just in a classroom, but broadly get educated. And the other thing that we know can help is if you structure your uh, advisory board or board of directors to spend some time uh, each and every year thinking about this subject of disruption and bringing in outside resources that can get you to think in a way that perhaps you're not, both you and your directors on your board. Mm. So I think that there are things you can do, but you've got to make time to do it. Yeah. If you don't don't structure it in, you're probably going to ignore it. And the danger is then you become blinkered and and, um, it's a bit like a a frog in a pot, isn't it? That the analogy of um, the the boiling frog is that, you know, you get to a point where all of a sudden the the water's really hot. (laughs) Precisely. That's exactly what happens. And then it's, then it's too late. Mm. Then it's too late. You know, I, um, uh, I, I also like the metaphor of, you know, you're traveling down the river in your raft, paddling along, and your paddling matters, but you're also being carried by a current. Mm. And every once in a while, there's a waterfall. And the problem with waterfalls is that you may not hear the waterfall until you're awfully close to it. And then it's hard to paddle out of its power. Yeah. And the question all companies need to ask today is how close to the waterfall are we? Mm-hmm. Not is there a waterfall? <laughs> because, yes, I can guarantee you there is a waterfall somewhere up there in your future. Mm-hmm. And maybe not that far into your future. So the only question is how far away are we? And <clears throat> so, you know, structuring you're hoping that your board uh, gives you uh, requires that you that the managers and owners of a company get altitude. Instead, what boards often do is get mired in operational discussions that the management team should be taken care of, and the board discussions become a not very productive use of time. Mm. And but you can change your board and we're working with companies today to help them do this in a practical way by changing some of the membership, by inviting in outside resources, by um, uh, structuring the agenda to make sure we get to the important topics by, by walking in with some industry um, information that could make people sit up and take more seriously the the eventuality of a waterfall. The, there are things you can do uh, 
in terms of structuring conversations and learning that can give you the altitude you need and the information you need, but we need to, but we need to do it. Mm. And it's an opportunity it's also, an opportunity isn't it, for um, the next generation? Because if they're able to perhaps um, learn some of this stuff through their education and then um, take a, a step out into the outside world to, to gain some experience from outside of their business, they can bring that in and say, this is what's happening out there. And um, Is that a way that you're seeing that some family firms are using that? Thank you, yes. And one of the <laughs> I think this is uh, built into families often is that we will often trust uh, somebody, more often trust somebody outside our own family, like another millennial, to come in and talk with our management team or our board uh, more than we will our own uh, kids. And sometimes that's justified, by the way, but, uh, but there's a built-in bias there as well. And I think you're exactly right here, Russ, that uh, we should be we should be listening more to the younger generation who is more familiar not only with new new technology and potentially where technology is going then and also new market uh, preferences markets are changing considerably and the the rise of the millennial generation is affecting um, not only what they're um, uh, demanding, but how it can be bought. And so, the uh, yeah, there's there's a very important opportunity here for dialogue within families. Mm. Uh, and don't just listen to your family, but do listen to your family. You know, and. Uh, we ought to be talking. Now, the, the second part of this is that the uh, younger generation, the millennials, we, we've, uh, we've had an ongoing research project going on here within our firm at the Cambridge Institute uh, on millennials from business families. And what we know from not only that research, but our advisory work is that uh, many millennials and business families aren't that interested in the traditional businesses or business of their family. They would like to do something new, something different. And uh, so their interests are going to shape the future of your company. Yeah. And uh, when, when we, um, when we talk with families, Russ, about, what they should be diversifying into or investing into, you know, it, it not only has to do with growth opportunities for one, of course, and you would like whatever business you're in to match up pretty well with your values and your family's goals. But it, but it also needs to be reflective of what a family is good at. Mm -hmm. And as a family goes from generation to generation, what they're good at and interested in can change. 
and and often does change. Yeah. And so the future of your business, if it's going to be a successful family business to some extent, to some large extent, needs to reflect what the family's good at and interested in. Mm. So, yeah, we, we ought to be talking with, more with the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that can be seen as quite a big risk to some in terms of um, diversifying away from something that might be a traditional that the family business has been built on. Is a business's appetite for risk correlated with their ability to cope with things like disruption and change? And, you know, I have a vision. I'm taking your analogy a little bit further in terms of um, the waterfall. There will be some family business um, owners who will be looking back up the river saying how beautiful that was rather than looking ahead and seeing the waterfall. And there'll be others uh, sat there navigating forward and thinking, okay, I, I need to watch out for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's a really useful way of extending uh, the river and the waterfall analogy. And I think that, <clears throat> I think that the um, uh, families often look back and they think that extending too far is risky. Now, they're right, which is why most families that have survived in business, when they diversified, they generally diversified into something that they knew about in some way, right? We're going to take what we do into the adjacent territory and sell there. We don't know that market as well, but we know our product. Or they'll say, well, let's change our product a little bit, and but we know something about this new product, and we're going to sell to the same customers. So that's the way it's typically, that's the way family companies have typically evolved over time, more in a step-by-step-by-step related process. Mm-hmm. And going out further than that, of course, is risky, which is why the, um, the thing we're stressing right now is to be experimental. That, number one, you don't have time anymore to do elaborate planning before you make some moves. Uh-huh. Now, you shouldn't do it blindly, of course, but by the time you get a, you know, a, a two-year study done of a market and da, 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 you know, the opportunity probably has closed. Yeah, but a few more so zettabytes created. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to experiment. You, you need to become experimental. Place little bets. Go out and learn about something, whatever it is, and <clears throat> see if we can be good in this new area over here. See if we can learn enough, learn about the market, learn about the new technology, learn about the new consumer preferences in that area and do it. And not bet too much until we know that we can move. But so movements now, migrations in business, need to be guided more by good experimentation, which is a type of planning, but it's a learning while you're doing Mm. type of activity 
and absorbing this new knowledge and saying, okay, is this the right move for us? If it is, let's bet more. And that experimental culture also is something that is um, um, vital to build into family companies. And I think family companies can can get there, Um, but they need to give the experimenters room to fail. Yeah, yeah. And if they can't cross that bridge, it's not going to work. And they also have to give them some independence. If they watch over and control and want to guide too much the, what the experimenter is trying to do, it, it also won't get off the ground. So families tend to be pretty controlling about operations. Uh-huh. They're very, very, you know, they tend to be very controlling about quality and about a lot of things that will kill an experiment before it has a chance to really see if it's viable. So um, we're trying to, in, in the families we work with, we're trying to get them to segment over here in a different area, maybe in a different building, some experimental work that can be close to, but out of the direct eyesight of senior management. So it has a chance to see if it's, you know, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's, um, family companies can get there, but they have to, they have to lean into their <clears throat> innovative um, strengths and guard against their controlling natures. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine um, somebody in the, in the next generation of a family firm listening to this going, yes, I get it. Uh, this is exactly what I've been, been trying to tell my um, parents or my um, aunts and uncles. That I, I've had this idea, I want to, to go off down that route, uh, and they haven't listened. So, so how, how can people in that situation start to you know, sell this as a good idea? Is it because it starts with communication? I'm guessing that you can't just this doesn't just happen. There has to be a starting point. Yeah, um, <clears throat> there has to be a starting point. You have to try to communicate and try to lay the argument out. And if it's a if it's a new area, and other people aren't doing it, which is why you want to do it, um, there's inevitably a lack of benchmarks out there where you can say, Oh yeah, yeah, I, I can see there are a lot of customers for that. Mm. Well, no, <laughs> no, there aren't a lot of customers for that yet because I haven't done it yet. And so there needs to be a, um, you need companies. And, and again, this does not have to be done. It doesn't have to require a lot of capital. But it does have to requ- it does require enough independence with some capital and some investment of time and some ability to experiment and fail and succeed and learn. Mm-hmm. And um, this is the way the future needs to be. We have to become in organizations much more experimental. And we need to keep 
our risk tolerance high to give individuals, these change agents and experimenters and innovators, you know, a, some license to do that. Now, having said that, I think as a strategy, younger generations, I tell them, look, if you can get somebody older than you, maybe your parents' age, or maybe someone between your age and your parents' age, to show an interest and back you up, it will almost always help to persuade the senior generation. Mm -hmm. So go outside your family, find somebody else who could be a good advisor to you to talk with your parents about why they think this is worthwhile trying. And um, so politically, I think we, <laughs> the younger generation has to get very creative, mm. you know, to break through the resistance and the um, risk aversion sometimes of the senior generation. And a lot of times there can be um, a degree of, I don't want to say conflict in the sense of people falling out over it, but, but disagreeing, different points of view on um, purely because there is this generational difference. And I know the world I grew up in was um, just sort of at the beginning of the internet era. And um, to my parents, that was entirely alien. You know, what do you mean you can go online and do it? I mean, they're, they're coming around to it now, but the, the world in which they grew up in looked a very particular way. And the world that each generation grows up in is entirely different. And it's trying to blend those to, to keep, as you said earlier, the values and, and the traditions of the family firm there, but making the most of the opportunities that this, these advances and, and developments create. Yeah. Well, in to, look, to, um, if, you're, if you're focused on a very narrow set of objectives, like we want to keep this company going, this company has been very good to our family. We want to keep this company going and we make X, Y, and Z. We make belts and shoes and ties. That's what we do. Okay. Well, you know, that's one vision there, but it's pretty narrow. And what I try to get families to adjust to, adapt to, is understanding that what they're really about is creating value with their own family values. Mm -hmm. Value and values is what I say. And so if you think more broadly, yeah, you know, we like making belts and shoes and ties. We like that. But ultimately what we're trying to do is to create something of value using our values. Well, that gives you more latitude so that if you decide moving into the, this next generation, that we're also going to make coffee mugs. Mm -hmm. and there's a big, big opportunity for coffee mugs, and we can use some of our values and even our distribution network, let's say, uh, if we go into the coffee mug business. Well, okay. And we're, we're going to do it our way. If a family can see... If a family's view of what they're about is a little broader, then they have more latitude to move. Mm -hmm. 
And but if they if they take a very narrow focus on what they're trying to build and pass, then it becomes harder to fit the next generation's dreams, aspirations, interests, skills into that into that box. Mm. But it also sets so the an example, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It shows the generations that come after that actually this is a a business that can adapt. It is um, uh, something that there is an opportunity to thrive within, even if you're not into making um, belts in that that scenario. Great. So um, what other areas are there where there can be... Um, disruption again we use the word loosely because as, as you pointed out disruption seems to have a negative connotation to it and um, the action must be taken immediately to to avoid this disruption um, but there are elements in um, sort of political circles and, and in terms of um, just socioeconomic um, and demographic um, areas that are, are affecting and disrupting how businesses and families operate what are some of those well, you know, um, uh, I'll give you two uh, that, that come to mind readily. One is uh, that consumer tastes uh, are changing preferences. What people are interested in buying, et cetera, uh, can and often does change with new generations um, and certainly is now. I mean, we're seeing... Um, uh, you know, a very interesting movement here is that the next generation, the millennials, are buying uh, far fewer automobiles. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, the the change in consumer tastes can certainly force adaptation and sometimes is so extreme that it's disruptive. And uh, so we have to pay attention very much to uh, what consumers are asking for. And so, for example, here's um, what we know, and this is aided by technology, is that consumers uh, across m- m- many industries want more customized um, goods and services. Okay. You know, make it for me. Mm-hmm. And if you can't make it for me, well, I'll go to somebody else who can. And uh, often, and this is what I'm hearing from companies, uh, it's not only make it for me, customize it for me, but then I also want a lower price as opposed to a higher price because you've made it for me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so customers are, are gaining uh, much more power in many industries again, aided by technology and uh, facilitated also by globalization. Uh, because if, if you're not willing to do it, I can go to a company over there in Hong Kong. They'll do it. Uh-huh. It'll just take two more days to ship it to me. You know, so, uh, so th- that's one disruptive uh, feature. But here's another one that we may not be thinking very much about, which is longevity. Uh-huh. Uh, people, people are living uh, longer now, and especially if we can get over some of the dege- degenerative diseases like diabetes uh, and cancer that are 
plaguing modern society, uh, we have the, the opportunity to extend life far, far into the future. You know, for example, um, in the U.S. now, but I think Western Europe even tends to be, um, UK, Western Europe, even ahead of the U.S. in these statistics, that um, the fastest growing age group in the U.S., is uh, between 85 and 94. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be relatively commonplace for kids that are born today to live to be 100. Mm. Uh, actuarially now, a 10-year-old has a 50-50 chance of living to 104. Wow. That's a lot. You know, that's really an extension. And, and then also vital life in that longer life is being extended also. And while that is a exciting to any of us that are still on the earth, uh, we, um, it's, it's not without its complications and can in fact be disruptive to a family and you can speak to that. I mean, you do financial planning with yeah. families. Yeah. You can speak to how longer life can be disruptive to the financial life of a, of a I'd love to learn from you about that. <laughs> but then also within a, within a family company, you know, if, if I'm in my seventies and do, still going strong, am I going to step away from active leadership of the mm. company and turn it over to my, uh, almost 50-year-old daughter. Well, she's ready for yeah. it. It's just that I like leading, you know, and we, we, could, we could soon end up with lots of situations where there are three generations, not two, mm -hmm. working in a family company. And, you know, and so when does the next generation get ownership control? When are they installed in leadership positions? We know that earlier transitions of leadership and ownership tend to uh, facilitate and support momentum and sustainability. We know that. But if we're living longer, <laughs> is that going to happen? Mm. You know, and uh, so we need to get on top of that one, because it, this situation is only, only getting more prevalent. Yeah. Now, yeah. Let, let me ask, I'll give you one more factor here that I think is really fascinating. Um, in addition to people living longer, younger people expect, feel that they deserve uh, responsibility and authority and even leadership roles earlier in life than certainly my generation uh -huh. thought of, expected it. Like we thought that if we got to be in leadership roles in our 40s, wow, that was great. But now, um, no, being a leader in your 30s and maybe even early 30s is set, uh, millennials think that that is um, realistic yeah it is yeah. it's not asking too much it's like well of course we're ready and so if younger people are expecting 
responsibility and authority earlier and older people are living longer and wanting to keep their responsibilities and authority later, we now have a gap. Yeah. We now have a big gap in expectations. And is that going to disrupt not only family companies, slow down transitions, maybe even see the exiting mm. of more and more younger generation members, but it could also be uh, somewhat damaging to family harmony and unity. Yeah, completely. I mean, there's an example here in the UK, um, in the royal family, in that the, the queen is in her 90s. Um, Prince Charles, who's the, the successor of our next generation, uh, has yep. just turned 70. <laughs> and uh, he's still waiting for his, um, his, his time on the throne. So it, it's, it's an extreme example, but it's, it's um, as you say, going to happen more and more. Um, yes. And I think that, or I'm interested in, in your view, actually, on the, the next generation, younger generation, now have um, access to so much more via social media, so much more via um, just the internet in general in terms of um, expectations. And the fact that we tend to, on social media, paint a very different picture of our lives than perhaps is, is real. It's the window we allow people to look through into our lives. So, so we choose what goes on to that. How that shaping the expectation for that generation as well. Because I mean, with Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook and, and other stuff that I'm probably not aware of, that the, a lot of the stuff is very lifestyle-based. Um, if you if you work hard, this is what could come your way. And there's probably a guy that's rented a Lamborghini for the day to to film a video in the hope of getting people to to buy his book. Um, but but it does it does impact on the expectations of the the consumers of that. that that's what it's designed to do. Yes. Yeah, and it's and it's shaping expectations in ways that are you know not healthy. I would say. So I, I agree with you. I think that um, what people expect and what younger people who are more active consumers of social media have come to expect is making it more and more likely that people are going to be disappointed mm. by how they're treated in life. And, and maybe not, um, I, I worry too that and this sounds a bit old fashioned, but I, I don't think it's out of, I don't think it's unrealistic that we need to have um, enough of a sense of delayed gratification mm. that we can work long enough for something to really make it not only uh, a useful endeavor, but to really feel satisfaction in what we're doing. Yeah. I think that, um, uh, if you don't invest yourself much in activities, uh, it's hard to feel, you know, attached to them or that they have been very satisfying. If you just, you know, move quickly from one activity to another to another mm. and just consume a little bit here and there and touch the world lightly, um, I don't think it's a very meaningful ride. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree. 
And, uh, and so more fundamentally, I worry about the, the light touch in life that um, social media seems to be um, encouraging. Mm. So, so in those scenarios, you, you spoke about where the expectations are um, further apart. In your own work, what, what sort of things are you doing to help kind of bridge that gap? Well, if, um, if uh, we know that companies typically should be experimenting in new activities, uh, the next generation uh, could be a better fit, typically is a good better fit for new experimental ideas. It's good for their development. They may know about them. They may be more interested in them. And we should try to find ways to give next generation successors that we're testing the opportunity to develop mm-hmm. uh, new, new ways to create value. And also to help us in our planning efforts and our shaping efforts to bring to the table ways in which they think that our business could be um, challenged and or disrupted. Mm-hmm. Use them as good resources recognize that they do have, in many cases, uh, a sense of things uh, that can be very useful for us. At least don't ignore it. And if you, can, uh, if you can give them opportunities to use their creativity in, um, in ways that can build their knowledge and experience and judgment and, and add value to what the family creates, that's a win-win. So I think that we need to do more of that, more, more dialoguing with them around things of common interest Uh and more experimenting through them so that we can uh, test them, but also see if they can add value in new ways. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And one of the other, um, as you mentioned, I'm a financial planner. Um, we tend to find with something like succession planning, there is a, a lot of preparation for next gen, but perhaps not so much done on the existing senior generation, on what they're actually retiring into, what they're moving on into. Uh, and I think that there's some work that can be done there to help prepare um, oh, good. the senior generation to again embrace the world that's out there and um, not feel bound to the business until their dying day. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. And I, I, I would love to see more senior generation leaders uh, taking more time to uh, see more of life and see more of their industry and what's happening in the world uh, than they are today. Mm. Could you could, um, for example, I'm just just thinking off the top of my head now. Take take a senior generation and say, the the time has come now for you to, to go and be our research person to go out into the uh, the outside world, and that's your role now. Someone needs to step into the, the leadership and, and management role within the business that you have. 
you now go out and and um, explore, if you like, and come back and tell us what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are um, uh, now here's <clears throat> sometimes it's just one person that we're developing for leadership, and we want to make that that one make sure that that one person is well informed, well-shaped, et cetera. So we send her or him to executive programs. We try to get them out looking at new things that are going on, et cetera. Other times it's a, it's a small team. Mm-hmm. Could be two or three or four people in the next generation. And one of the things that we're trying to encourage in next generation development if there's more than one, let's say, active owner, that you need to get people aligned about what this company could do, should do in the future, what's coming at it in terms of new technology or new uh, geographical opportunities, et cetera, you need to develop a team uh, in that uh. next generation. But sending them out in this, with this kind of a mission every once in a while Go out, search, come back, and tell us what you see that could be relevant to us. It's a great exercise for the next generation. Fantastic. Sounds like a great idea. idea. Um, John, thank you um, for your time. I'm conscious that we're at the end of our slot. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want me to? Russ, you and I could talk, I think, for hours about <laughs> uh, these kinds of interesting topics yeah. and uh, and turn over a lot more stones. And uh, all I can say is that, um, you know, everything is uh, in motion today. Uh, you know, from the way we work to management, um, uh, governance needs to be rethought for companies that need to change and uh, change quickly. Um, family life is changing. We know that. Um, the, uh, the way we invest, the way we um, even source for capital today, you know, philanthropy, you know, you, we go down a long list and everything is in motion. And it's good to take stock of that every once in a while. What we, can, what we can and should try to keep constant is um, a healthy approach to life, how we treat others, how we uh, think about our own lives, how we, um, the, the, the quality of our activities, things that really are motivating. And um, that's what we need to hang on to and reaffirm in the midst of all of this change. And uh, families that do that, I think, are well positioned if they can do both. You know, this is who we are, this is what we stand for. But we're about creating value here. Uh-huh. And um, how, do, how do we think we ought to do that now? And can we do it together as a family? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the big, big question. I love it. Um, 
thank you again thank you. Uh, for your time. Where can our audience find out about you? Uh, you know, the simplest, the simplest way is through uh, johndavis.com. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a website that can link to you also to the work at uh, Cambridge, uh, our advisory and research firm, mm -hmm. and, uh, and also to the activities that I'm leading now at MIT. So johndavis.com, and thank you, Russ, for this opportunity to talk with you i enjoyed it fantastic and fantastic. We'll, we'll put links in our show notes, show notes. Um, and uh, i'm sure hopefully you'll be on the show again yeah i i would be delighted that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to leave us a review please feel free to do so on itunes if you want to get in touch you can find out more information at www.fambiz.com fanbizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.